Bibles, please turn to the book of Ephesians. We've been working through that, and we've gotten to a, uh, it's all good and all interesting, but we've gotten to a pretty interesting section talking about spiritual warfare, being prepared, being aware, and being prepared for it. And so we come to verse 14 today. Chapter 6, verse 14. Actually, let me go back a little bit because really it starts at verse, verse 10. And we started that. We read that last week and considered it, but we'll... Uh, work through these following verses, but let's get it in context. So Ephesians 6.10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation <clears throat> and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask you now to open our hearts and our minds to your word, that which you direct us to do, we pray you would bring about in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit, applying your word to our hearts, uh, that our actions and our thoughts and our words would be changed, Lord, and transformed by your power and through the Holy Scriptures, the truth. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. So we have this, this uh, 14th verse. We pick up Paul tells us there to stand. Actually, he told the Ephesian church, but by extension, uh, this went out to the other churches. Stand, therefore. The therefore is there because he's just talked about it in verses 10 through 13, uh, where he says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So he tells us, first, don't try to do this in your own strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then he tells us why and what we need to do. He says, put on the whole armor of God. That word put on there is a beautiful word. It means to take up. You can almost see the armor laying on the ground. It's like, why is that? Either because others have thrown it off or it's been neglected. But there's a battle coming. And there's a battle present and raging now. So he calls the church to put on the whole armor of God. Uh, the word there, whole armor, is panoply. Uh, and that comes from the word pot, pan or pan in Greek. And then uh, from the actual word for soldier, hoplite. If you ever read about the Greeks, their, their light infantry was, they were called hoplites. Those, if you've ever seen pictures of them from the vases and things, sometimes from the um, mosaics, you'll see pictures of Greek hoplites. And they lightly armed, they have their helmet, they have their shield, usually have a spear or a sword. They were the... Uh, shock troops that would hit the enemy hard. Paul is in Rome, and a little bit of difference, in, he mentions in here some of the weaponry that Christians are to take, the battle sword of the spirit, literally the word for sword there implies that. It's uh, the, the Roman short sword was, uh, if you were an enemy of Rome, it didn't seem that short of a sword, but it was a lightweight weapon or a smaller weapon. 
and very uh, agile in its use, so they were, and it was uh, quick, and so they, they used that. Their shield, though, I was just reading up on the, the Roman shield, a little different. The Greeks usually had a round shield. The Romans had a the, the infantry shield. It was four feet high by two and a half feet wide. So when Paul says, take the, the shield of faith, uh, he was probably thinking clearly of the Roman shield because he was in Rome and he was, when he says an ambassador in chains later, it's very likely it was chained to a Roman soldier. That's the way they kept you in custody back in those days. They didn't just chain you up to a wall or something. You had some freedom, but you had a soldier with you. Paul makes reference uh, to the Praetorian Guard hearing the gospel. Those were the emperor's uh, elite soldiers, and those were the ones guarded uh, they guarded Paul because he had appealed to Caesar when he was brought to Rome. So he was being guarded and kept in custody by the Praetorian Guard, the elite troops, and the gospel for some somehow or other it got into the Praetorian Guard. They were becoming believers. And it's pretty clear it's because Paul was there. They saw his example, they listened to him, and he began uh, discipling them. It was kind of funny that, you know, who was chained to whom, you might wonder, you know. Uh, Paul recognized that, and so he refers to himself as an ambassador. Jumping ahead a little bit, but this is to get it in context. An ambassador, which even back in those days, ambassadors were considered uh, protected. You know, you, you, they were the representatives of a foreign government. They uh, Now, you know, we speak of diplomatic immunity. That concept existed in the ancient world generally, but not if they were doing crimes, obviously. But Paul refers to himself with the enigma of being an ambassador in chains. He is representing the kingdom of God. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. And yet in this world, he, he scares men so badly they had to put him into chains because the truth definitely uh, changes things. They, the enemy didn't want that. So Paul's here telling me there is a battle going on. You have to be prepared. Put on the whole armor of God. Tells him why, verse 11. <clears throat> that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles there, uh, it's not a word necessarily we use a whole lot, I think, now, but it, it's a trickery. The, the Greek word is methodius. We get the word methods, but when you're referring to the enemy, and also in Greek, that word took, meant crafty, tricky-type methods, okay? We know his methods, Paul had said elsewhere. We're aware of what the enemy tries to do in temptation and slander, as I mentioned last week, the word, you know, the English word devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, and it means slanderer. You know, diabol a diabolos is one who slanders another person. That's what the devil does. And so, see, good principle there when Paul said we're not ignorant of his wiles, one of them is slander. So we, we're not to be talking bad about people and we're not to be listening to it because as i've said before i think it's pretty clear from scripture um listening to slander and gossip is just as bad as spreading it so you know if someone comes to you with gossip and slander you might want to gently tell them you're not interested in hearing it okay and kind of lead them in a better way so, and then one thing to do also really very clearly while I'm on that subject, if someone comes and says something, well, did you hear what blah, 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 my brother or sister so-and-so did or this, that, and the other, you want to kill it real quick. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be rude. You say, have you talked to him about that? And if they say no, then you say, well, then I'm not really interested in you talking to me about it. Or if you really want to do something, well, wow, that sounds pretty serious. You haven't talked about it. Well, let's go right now and go talk to him. And then you'll find out that well, it's not that important, you know, uh, et cetera. So we want to deal with those things because, the, you know, the devil is a slanderer and we don't want to be doing the devil's work. So Paul says we're not ignorant of his wiles and we're to stand against the wiles of the devil. You know, Paul uses military descriptions. This is martial, you know, type pictures being given to us. But he's talking about everyday life in the Christian faith. He's not saying actually go buy a suit of armor and walk around in it. That would probably be cool. You'd get the, you know some people's attention. Uh, you'd also be kind of noisy as you're walking about, probably with your armor clanking. But somebody's talking about somebody living your daily life and being aware that you're in a battle when you're in the home, when you're doing your studies or at school or on the job, whatever it is. There's a battle going on there. You don't have to wait and look around. It's a, it's we're dealing with spiritual forces. So he says why he says, and this is exactly it. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
So the first thing he lets us know, and I've mentioned this before, Jameson, Foss, and Brown, their commentary also bring this out. The Greek is, it is not to us to wrestle against flesh and blood. So what he's talking in saying that it's not the church's job to use a physical sword to repress evildoers. I do believe Christ put the sword of self-defense into the hands of his people. He armed his disciples at the Last Supper, and he never told them to get rid of their weapons. If you remember, I've mentioned this somewhat often because of the uh, propaganda that gets spread in our country about that, where when Peter smote, smote Malchus in the ear and, and cut it off, and then Jesus healed it, he told Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. He didn't say, throw it away. He didn't say, you need to turn that over to the authorities. He said, put it back in its sheath. He let Peter keep it. And I've mentioned to others, it's kind of funny when you think about Peter, you know, when he was in the high priest's house and all the things going on during the trial of Jesus, Peter very likely was still wearing a sword. He was armed. Uh, nobody thought anything about it. It wasn't uncommon uh, for that to be the case. But Christ did not take the sword of self-defense. And he also says, if any provide not for his own, he's worse than an infidel. And basic safety in your home against, you know, robbers and thieves and murderers and things like that. Uh, and even outside of the home when you travel, uh, the idea of being armed is not contrary to Scripture. Okay? And that's not an aside. That's part of this. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood means it's not to us. The civil magistrate is to suppress it, but we do have the right of self-defense in Scripture. All right, that's, I think, pretty clearly taught. But also what Paul is also saying here is that we're really not warring against people in this. You may have people in your life that are somewhat of an irritant. You may know people that uh, are not Christians, that have a spirit of persecution about them, or an attitude, we should probably say. Um you're not really fighting against them. You may know Christians that prove to be hypocritical. Well, they're not necessarily your enemy. Those are people you need to pray for. Now, Paul did talk about having enemies. Alexander the coppersmith, he said, or silversmith, he said, did me, I think actually this coppersmith, he said, did me much wrong. So he, I, he identified an evildoer to Timothy. Uh, and John in his uh, epistles in, in uh Third John talks about Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence and had excommunicated people for the what he felt was the crime, that is, Diotrephes felt was the crime of receiving the apostles. Diotrephes wanted to be the numero uno guy. Um, so there are evildoers named, and there are people of flesh and blood that are enemies to us and to the gospel. But ultimately, we need to remember, this is a spiritual battle. And if you were in the early church and someone came to you and said, we need to pray for the death of this guy, Saul, man, he's causing so much trouble, how out of the will of God you would have been, okay? Uh, probably, uh, hopefully, you know, from what we know of Scripture, there were people that were saying, we need to really pray for this guy, Saul, because, man, he is he's bad, okay? We need to pray that God would stop him. And look what God did, turned him into a Paul. So we need to remember, even if we have people that are treating us ill, etc., cetera, uh, we're to pray for them and we're not justified in doing harm. You can defend yourself if somebody's trying to harm you or your family, okay? You can defend your family. But the real battle is a spiritual battle. That's what Paul's talking about here. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So if someone's thinking, oh, well, I guess we don't have any enemies. He's like, guess again, you're dealing with the heavy duty things. But against principalities, or that's where there are princes, it's where principality is. Against powers, that is authorities. It's usurped authority, but it's still authority. Against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Against spiritual hosts, that is armies, there it's applied, but the idea is in the original. Against spirit, the spiritual hosts, or the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's evil afoot, is what he's saying, and it uh, is right up to the gates of heaven, but it's uh, not before the throne. Christ is there for us. So he's telling us, we're, you're dealing with some pretty heavy-duty spiritual forces, and you need to realize that. He's writing to the church. Now, this comes to each of us as individuals, but we do need to understand this corporately because he's addressing the church. And so then he says, therefore, because of this battle that we're in, take up the whole armor of God. Pick it up that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, that is when the devil is afoot and things are going bad for the people of God, and having done all, that is, 
having stood and become victorious, to stand. Note that phrase, stand, comes up quite a bit in this passage. Verse 14, stand therefore. Now, remember I've talked about aorist uh, imperatives and present imperatives, a little Greek grammar, okay? Uh, aorist is, is a Greek idea in the verbal action, verbs, of those action words that start doing something. That's what it is. The present imperative is continue doing something you've been doing or uh, you know, keep, keep going, you know, repeating it. In this case, Paul uses an aorist imperative. Imperative means it's a command. Stand. He's telling them to do something. But it's aorist meaning start doing this. Now, it's either something they hadn't been doing or something that they had been doing and had begun to leave off. Paul said, start standing. We could translate it that way if we wanted to. Start standing. And then the uh, accompanying actions that go with this are also in the aorist. But that means that he's saying, having done these other things first. Paul doesn't send unprepared warriors into battle. And he's telling us, you need to be prepared. You're going to need to stand, but you better be already having done. There's some convoluted English grammar for it. You better have already done these other things. Don't try to go into battle wearing a tunic. All right. You need to have your armor on. You need to have your shield. You need to have your breastplate. You need to have your helmet. You need to have your sword when you're going into battle. Don't think you're going to show up, you know, wearing your uh, you know, shopping clothing in the spiritual battle. So he's saying you've got to make a conscious effort in the in regard to these things. Again, we're not talking about physical armor. We're talking about those things that the Holy Spirit gives to us, but that we need to be aware of. These are uh, pictures, analogies that he's using. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth. If you're a soldier... You put on your belt, you have your tunic on, you put your belt on. Your belt is where things are going to uh, hang. Your sword's going to be there. You're going to have that. That also helps you. If you remember the uh, in the Old Testament, often they would uh, gird up their, their loins, meaning they take their, their robe and they tuck it into their belt so they could move faster. But he's telling us here, uh, have your waist wrapped with truth. What does that mean? Let truth surround you. Let that be what holds you together. And so that's what he's saying. He said, stand there for having girded your waist with truth. That is, you've already done that before you're trying to fight spiritual battles. What is truth? Jesus was asked that by Pontius Pilate. Christ had answered that in his prayer. Remember John 17, 17. If you've been around here for a while, you should know that verse. All right. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In our Bible study, we read of the one young man when Absalom was, was killed. It, he wanted to run and tell King David. And Joab told him, he said, um, you're, you're not, you don't have anything to say. You don't have a message. And when he got there, he told David what he'd seen. And then when David asked him, is Absalom dead or alive or what? He said, I don't know. <laughs> and so David said, stand aside. Uh, and some of uh, Spurgeon, I think, and others have used that as a picture of someone that wants to run, but they're not prepared. You know, and so if God's called you to serve him, get prepared. That's what he's saying. Get ready. Get prepared. Paul's not writing these folks saying if you're not prepared, just you're exempt. Go ahead. You can go home and not worry about any of this because, you know, you don't know the Bible that well. You don't pray that much. Uh, you know, you don't really understand necessarily what righteousness is or too much. The gospel is kind of a fuzzy thing to you. So it's okay. Just go. Paul's not saying that. He's saying, you better get armed. You better get your armor on because you are in a battle, whether you want to be in it or not. That's the reality. And there's no neutrality in this. There's nobody that gets exempt and says, yo, you don't have to do this. You can be on your sick bed or your deathbed. You better have on your spiritual armor. You can be walking around your house. You can be going to work. You can be doing whatever you're doing. You need to have on your spiritual armor because you are in a battle. You may not be aware of it, but I guarantee you the powers of darkness, they know who you are. They know what you're doing. They know you probably a whole lot better than you think because they know what they've been able to use in the past to trip you up and to get you to fall face dirt in the ground. They know what temptations you're, uh, you succumb to. They know a lot of things. So you need to get yourself Aware of the fact that you are in a spiritual battle, 
Playing around with sin, acting like there's no battle going on is not an option for a Christian. You've been called to stand. That's what Paul's doing here. He's not making it optional. He's saying, stand therefore, have your waist girded with truth. You need to know the Bible. You need to know the truth. It's not optional. You say you're a Christian. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. So knowing your Bible is not an option. You say, well, I don't read that well. Well, then listen to it. All right. But learned if, you know, in the church in Korea, which is a, a large church of Bible believing people, it's uh, they have huge churches, congregations, but uh, that's neither here nor there. But the nation itself has been strongly affected by the gospel. One of the principles in general use, I have been told early on in the history of the Korean churches, there were two things. One, they didn't hire people to do anything. If they were going to serve, they served as unto the Lord. That is, you know, when the missionaries were there, they didn't, you know, in China, they'd given rice to people that would come to church. And so they created what's called rice Christians. And when the rice ended, the Christians supposedly that were, were nowhere to be found. There were those that loved the Lord that were still there. So when they, some of the missionaries, when they first went into Korea in the 1800s, they talked to a very uh, well-known missionary. His name eludes me right now. But they asked him, what should we do? Because he'd been successful in China. He had preached the gospel and people had really seemed to get serious about serving God. And he told them that. He said, don't give out payment for Christian service. Just if they want to serve the Lord in, free, in the church, now, granted, labor is worthy of his hire. If someone builds a building, they should be paid for it. If someone's doing actual work, uh, you know, they, they, it's okay to pay them. But what he meant is don't give them money or don't give them bowls of rice for showing up for church. And so they said, okay, so they didn't. But they had another principle. They wouldn't allow anyone to join the church who couldn't read. Now, what they did, they didn't turn people away. They said, you can't read? I'll teach you to read. I actually learned from that back east. There was a young man in the church. He wanted to join the church. This is when I was pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church outside of Philadelphia. He couldn't read. They did not diagnose him. They just put him in a He was, a, by the way, he was an outstanding football player. So they put him in a category where he didn't have to know anything academically. And so they said, uh, yeah, you're fine. You can still play sports because they didn't expect anything from him. He didn't have to actually do any schoolwork. And he was getting ready to graduate. And I said, can you read? He said, no. He said, not really. I said, well, you can't join the church if you can't read. And he was really in despair. I said, I will teach you how to read. And um, his name was Robert, a great guy. And he, um, I told him, I said, we'll meet a couple times a week. But I, and I told him, I said, don't show up here not doing your homework. Because the day you don't do your homework, you're, we're done. And so he did it. And I got an old King James Bible and we started reading it. And it's you know, explaining to him what a noun was and a verb and had him sound it out, et cetera, et cetera. And he learned how to read. They're going to graduate him being functionally illiterate. Uh, and he began to love his Bible. Now, the last time I heard from him, I wasn't home, but he came to visit us when we lived out on Roberts Island or Union Island in Stockton. And I had been told, yeah, he came, he wanted, uh, came from Pennsylvania. He was out here. He wanted to say hi. He brought his fiance. And he had uh, uh, done pretty well. He was in college, in university, and he was a history major. So I'm very thankful to the Lord that I'd read that about the Koreans and applied it. So the point is, is that you have to be girded with the truth, okay? And that's God's word. And it's also meaning application, the truth about who you are and what the world is, etc. That's what holds you together. Everything depends on that. So having put on uh, the girded your waist with the truth, let that bind you up. That is that that gives you your strength. Having put on the pre the breastplate of righteousness and that first and only righteousness that will protect you is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what's given to you freely. That's what the gospel is all about. If you're not sure what that is, start reading the book of Romans. It'll tell you that through Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. The just or the righteous, dikaios in the Greek, shall live by faith. As we receive the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone, that's how God justifies us. And that word actually means to declare righteous. 
So in going against the enemy, you want to make sure that your heart is protected with the knowledge that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And it's not a thin garment, it's armor, the righteousness of Christ. That carries over, though, in affecting our character so that we do begin to do the right thing. We love the Lord. We know the truth. We want to walk according to it. So this can be understood kind of in a twofold way. But first and foremost, don't go against the enemy in your own righteousness. You better be trusting fully in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. That's going to terrify the enemy. And that's what's going to cause you to be able to stand. And again, keep in mind, he's talking here to a group of people. So we see this. He's telling the church as a unit Stand. And the idea there is it's stand together. This is not individualism. It's talking about the corporate body of Christ. The commands in this passage are plural and addressed to the church in Ephesus. We desperately need to start thinking differently about the church local and universal if we're going to take these commands seriously and begin a renewed obedience to them. These commands are not merely addressed to us as autonomous individuals, that is out all by ourselves. Uh, those individuals, we must each resolve to obey them personally. They're not merely addressed to us as families. Though as families, we must be as Joshua and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And they're not merely addressed to us as members of a civil commonwealth. Though as citizens, we must resolve to see righteousness promoted and wickedness removed from our nation's laws and from our culture. To the obedience of Christ, that's what we're aiming at. In ourselves first and then in others in our society. We need to lead every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. These commands address us as individuals, as families, and as a civil society but they address us as the church corporate made up of those things. We are the church, the body of Christ, standing in the unity of the spirit and growing into the unity of the faith. As the church, we are to stand together like soldiers in a battle line facing the enemy. If we are in truth a true church, united in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and not just a religious social club that meets weekly, then we must start thinking and acting as a cohesive unit on a local level that is part of a great army of saints doing God's will together. The Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies, the Lord Sabaot. Sabaot is a Hebrew word. It means armies, plural. The Lord of hosts does not just refer to the angelic armies, the angelic host, but to the church militant that is on earth fighting the Lord's battles. That's us. That's you. We're to stand together. That's what Paul is saying here. And so we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And now we're to stand having done this and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. You're, you're to have your shoes on. You know, Robert E. Lee wouldn't send troops into battle if they were barefoot. And that was a problem during the Civil War, particularly in the South, getting shoes. You got to figure you've got 5,000 men. You need 10,000 shoes. And so there was a lot of shoemaking going on. Well, Paul wasn't in the Civil War of the United States. He was in the Roman culture at the time. Interesting thing about the Roman shoes. You know, sandals were generally what people wore. The Romans, they, you know, they actually, archaeologically, we have examples. There's been some made it through all the centuries. We know what their shoes looked like. They're in museums uh, in Europe. They have them. An interesting thing about the Roman shoe was they were the first, at least that I'm aware of in my researches, to put a heel on their sandals or their, you know, their, their shoes that they strapped on. And they had things quite similar to our type of shoes. They weren't all open-toed, but they put a heel on them because they found out that if soldiers have a heel on their shoe, they can march farther and not get wearied. And so it was a rather uh, interesting military advantage that the Romans gave to their soldiers. They had good shoes on their feet and they were then able to march and not be completely worn out by the time they got to battle. Now there's some African tribes, the Zulus have been said they can run 40 miles and then fight a battle. So, and they, they do it barefoot there, okay? So um, some people need shoes, some don't, but the Romans had that. So Paul is here writing to people living in the Greco-Roman culture. He says, have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Be ready. 
Don't go out and stub your toe is what he's saying. You know, the word stumbling block is it means just that. It's something you, you stub your toe on first before you fall on your face. So he said, have your shoes on. You're going to need it. You're going to need them, rather, I should say. And then he says, above all, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one because he's going to be shooting at you. If you think you're not in a battle, you're wrong. Now, what are the fiery darts of the wicked one? Well, generally, because he uses the term wicked one there, or the evil one, he's referring to temptations. He's referring probably to slander. Uh, just anything and everything that the enemy can throw at you, he's going to do so. And so you had better have the shield of faith. And speaking, you know, Roman shield was highly protective. And so it was a, a good protective thing. That's, these are defensive. By the way, all of these are defensive uh, armaments here. So take the shield of faith. Literally, it's the shield of the faith. <coughs> it can refer to the act of us, by God's grace, believing but this, this phrase, the faith, can also refer to the body of truth. What is the faith? That's your shield, knowing the truth. Knowing, well, as a Christian, what is it that you believe? Well, when the enemy is throwing darts at you, it's important to remember, first and foremost, who you are. I belong to Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. Have that shield. You know, once in a while, those fiery darts, I do think, sometimes get through because we've got our shield down when we're not paying attention. And... You know, we have things happen that, that hurt, you know, whether it's a word from someone else, uh, an unnecessary or unkind word, uh, whether it's a temptation that's come upon us or we've fallen into sin. All those things are just the accusations, you know, not just of our own conscience, but the enemy uh, amplifying that. So we need to remember if we sin, we can go to Christ for forgiveness and cleansing and we need to confess to him. But we need to not be afraid. You know, if you were in a Roman line and you had your shield, I think, well, if you've seen in the movies where, you know, they yell, form the turtle, you know, and they all get together and lock shields and the enemy can't do anything to them. Uh, church sometimes has to do that. But we need to be, you can't, you can't form a turtle. The Romans have got this. People who lived in Ephesus understood it. The people in Rome understood it. If someone yells, yell a turtle and you're all by yourselves, I, uh, you know, they say, form a turtle. It's like, I can't. I'm all by myself. All right, so we need to stand together. Your shield is important, not just for you, but for your brothers and sisters around you. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation. It's interesting, he uses a different word here. He's not saying take up. It's literally receive the helmet of salvation. That's a gift from God. Elsewhere, Paul refers to the, the hope of salvation. In First uh, Thessalonians 5.8, Paul refers to the helmet of the hope of salvation. That is knowing that, and by the way, hope's not like, you know, I cross my fingers and I hope, I hope, I hope. It's the hope meaning the expectation of it, that God has saved us through the blood of his son. He does receive us. And Paul says, put on the helmet of salvation because the enemy is going to try to whack you in the head with some of his lies, whether they're philosophical or whether they're just temptations or whether they're slander. Have your head covered. Don't let it knock you for a loop and make you dizzy and fall down. You're to receive that. It's given to you. And I think Paul used that word because he didn't want to make it sound like salvation is something that we do. Your salvation is something you receive from God. That's what he's saying. Wear your salvation like a helmet. The fact that Jesus has forgiven your sins and received you and God the Father loves you. He's received you as his child. He's promised never to leave you nor forsake you. That'll keep your head in the right order, won't it? That'll protect you when you're going through all those things. If you stumble, if you fall into sin, or if you're being just even overly tempted, as James says, drawn away from our own lust and entice, you can remember who you are, and you belong to Jesus. And you can say, Lord, I thank you. You've said you'll never leave me nor forsake me, so help me. Put that helmet on your head. Know that you are saved by your Savior. Look to Jesus. And the sword of the Spirit, first time I mention of an... Uh, Offensive weapon, offensive weapon is mentioned here, and that's the sword of the spirit. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter four, let's read that because it's really an important passage in the fourth chapter of Hebrews. He makes reference to the sword of the spirit. And he says in verse 11 of chapter four of Hebrews, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. 
lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. He's referring to the children of Israel, the ones that failed to enter into the promised land because of unbelief. <clears throat> then he says, for the word of God is living and powerful. And follow with me on this, because there's a really, really fascinating development takes place in this passage. For the word of God is living and powerful. There's God's word. There's nothing like God's word. God's word is eternal. And we have it printed on pages of books on paper or parchment, whatever your Bible you're using. But it's a lie. That word itself is a living word. That doesn't mean like, you know, sometimes say the Constitution is a living document. So they want to change it all the time and misapply it. That's not what that means. It means it's alive. It's powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. <clears throat> I've seen some pretty sharp swords. You know, I've seen some knives. You know, I had one knife that I used for cooking. So I, I touched it. It just touched my hand. I was sitting on the couch. I just touched it. I didn't go up and down. I touched it, and I, I had a cut. It was sharp. The word of God is sharper than that. It gets right down to the core of things. Sharper. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. It can sort things out, and that's what it does. <clears throat> and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and heart, excuse me, thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word will show you what's going on in your own heart. It'll let you know when you're, you're fooling yourself, when your intentions aren't quite as pure, maybe, as you thought they were. Or maybe this is a good thing that you weren't sure about. And as you study the scripture, you say, yeah, this is pleasing to God. The word of God is a sword. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And as he's talking about the word, here's this what I find a fascinating transition. Because he's, he's talking about the word, the scriptures, we would say. And then he says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight. He's talking about the scriptures, the word of God, and all of a sudden he's talking about his sight. Why? Because God's word is his word. When you're dealing with the word of God, the Bible, you're dealing with God. When you're receiving the, the words of God in scripture, you're receiving what God himself has said. No, there is no creature hidden from his sight. That is the word, but really he's talking here about God. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So he transitions from scripture to God. So if you want to know what your relationship is with God, it's really easy to find out. What's your relationship to your Bible? If it's non-existent, you need to go and start praying, okay? Uh and so Paul tells us that, okay? But your relationship with God can be defined by your relationship to the Bible. That's why, beloved, you've got to start reading your Bible. You've got to pick it up. Blow the dust off for whatever you need to do. You know, it's the hardest book in the world to pick up. You can pick up a romance novel. You can pick up the remote for the TV. You can pick up a computer or whatever. It's a lot easier. The hardest thing to pick up is the Bible. That's when you say, Lord, help me to read the Bible more. And do that because it's the sword of the spirit. It's the only way you're going to push back the enemy, which is the word of God. Then he tells us to be in communication. You know, armies have communication. We use radios now. They used to use trumpets. Okay. Uh, they had various signals they would play out. And they, the troops knew what to do. For us, though, we have direct communication. Better than radio communication. No delays. It's praying always with all prayer and supplication. Uh, so meaning really presenting your petitions to God. In the spirit, that is according to God's word, but also relying on the Holy Spirit to help you. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance, that is keep doing it. Don't quit praying. And supplication for all the saints. There's nobody in this room that doesn't need others to be praying for them. And I hope you guys do pray for each other. And we need to do that more, you know. Um, and be aware, not just for you praying to others. You need them to be praying for you. Note that's what he says with all perseverance for all the saints. And then Paul says, well, he says, and while we're at it, for me, why? That utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly or confidently, the original could be translated, to make known the mystery of the gospel. Wait a minute. Why isn't Paul saying, pray for me that I can get out of these chains and get out of this mess? Paul doesn't even think in those categories. He knows he's in God's hands. Yes, he wants to be free. Eventually, from what we understand, he did get free, at least the first time. Then a couple years later, they arrested him and killed him. 
But he doesn't pray for freedom here. He prays for effectiveness. Pray for me that I can open my mouth. Paul didn't, he, it was irrelevant where he was. Hey, I got a Roman soldier here. I'm in, I'm in Rome. Pray that God will open my mouth. Some would say, but what about your circumstances? He said, they're not that good. Okay, and you can pray for that also. Elsewhere, he does pray that he would be delivered from, ask for prayer to be delivered from unreasonable men. So that's not excluded in this. But note Paul's prayer, beloved, and let's follow this. He said that I may make known the mystery of the gospel. Mystery doesn't mean it's unknowable. It just means people don't know it. And the gospel is revealed by the word of God. It's not something you find in nature. You can go out and study the trees. You can study the sky. You can, uh, you know, mic microscopes and telescopes. Learn all kinds of stuff. But you're never going to find the gospel that God sent his son into the world to die and to rise again and who Jesus is. That is given by special revelation only, and that is to be preached. Men don't know how to be made right with God simply by nature. It's got to be preached. It's got to be shared. It's got to be spoken. Paul knew this. That's why he calls it the mystery of the gospel. For which he says, I am an ambassador in chains. That in it, that is in this chain, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says, I'm here for Jesus Christ. By the way, wherever you are, that's why you're there. He said, as I ought to speak, as it is necessary, literally, for me to be speaking. So may God give us grace to put on that armor, stand together, and follow Christ, and be a witness. And recognize we belong to his army, and his army is on the move. So get with it and join in, you know. Kind of like Jehu, when he was coming south, when they sent troops against him, he just told him, he said, fall in behind me. And pretty soon the whole army was there. So as Christ goes forth to war in this world, subduing it, he calls us to be his soldiers, to stand. And I believe, you know, uh, to advance as he leads us. So may God give us grace. But let's learn to do this and ask him to help us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask you to seal it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and bring about that which you command, Lord. As your servant Augustine said centuries ago, Lord, give that which thou commandest, then command whatsoever thou wilt. So, Lord, we ask that, Lord, as you have willed for these things to be in us, we pray you would bring them about and grant them to us. For we ask all these things with the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And I believe we have a closing hymn. Thank you. We all stand together.
be seated. Well, this time we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as I mentioned earlier, the Lord's Supper is for those who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and relying on him and his righteousness for all their salvation. Um, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 11 about that we need to examine ourselves and we need to eat and drink in a worthy manner. That's pretty clear in the context. An unworthy participation in the Lord's Supper is an unexamined participation. We are to examine ourselves. We're to judge ourselves, he actually says. And that means we identify the sin in our life or as the Holy Spirit brings to our remembrance those things we've said, thought, or done. Uh, and we're to confess them to Jesus. He's our high priest. He can forgive us. And he promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we're to do that in prayer. And as we take account of our lives, and then we're to remember why we can do this, because Jesus died on the cross. There was a day, a spring day in history outside the northern gate in Jerusalem when our Savior was nailed to a cross and not just his physical sufferings, which were off the scale, but spiritually and in his soul, he underwent the wrath of God. As it says, God's wrath was poured out upon him, and he there died and took the hell that you deserve and I deserve. So we have great reason to give him thanks, and that's why this is a celebration. It's The sacrifice was offered. It did what it needed to do. It doesn't need to be repeated, and it can't be. And so we celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let's go to prayer now, and then uh, we'll continue on. So let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we do thank you, Father, for loving us. We thank you for making provision for us to be forgiven and to be cleansed, for our guilt to be pardoned and for our corruptions to be taken away. Lord, we know that the first is done instantly, Lord, when your Holy Spirit brings us to saving faith in, in the new birth. When you there declare us to be righteous because of the righteousness of your Son that's given to us freely and received by faith alone. We thank you for Jesus, Heavenly Father. We thank you for his perfection that as your Son, Lord, through all eternity, he covenanted with you to redeem us. And in time, when he came into this world and took to himself a true human nature and a real body of flesh and blood made like us in every aspect as a true man, except sin. So we thank you, Father, for the sinlessness of your son, Jesus, and his perfection and his righteousness, his obedience to you. That at all times, as you yourself said, Lord, at his baptism, that he is your beloved son in whom you were and always are well pleased. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you give us his righteousness and that in him you receive us and are well pleased with us in spite of our sins, Lord. We thank you that you don't account them to us now. We thank you that you are taking the corruptions out of our lives, Lord, and that you're transforming us and conforming us to his image. Lord, you're bringing forth things in our lives that are wonderful. It's your work, Lord, and we thank you for that. You filled our hearts, Lord, and, and beginning to fill them more and more every day with love to you and to others, Lord, and a desire to do that which is right. We thank you for that, Lord. We ask you in your mercies to continue your work in us, individually and corporately, Lord, as your church. Bless us, we pray. Sanctify us. Help us, Lord, we pray. Give us grace to turn away from sin. We pray also you give us grace to, to pray not to enter into temptation as you taught us in the Lord's prayer to say, Lord. And so we pray you'd help us, Lord, to live lives that are honoring to you and that our consciences might be healed and that we might be able to praise your name and love you, Lord God, and not be burdened down by a knowledge of our sins and, and the waywardness of our actions and thoughts and deeds. Lord, help us, we pray. 
We thank you, Father, that the basis for us coming and asking this is the death of your son, Jesus Christ, when he suffered on Calvary's cross and your wrath that was justly aimed at us was poured out on him. Lord, that punishment, suffering as he did in his person, in his human nature, that was the punishment that we deserve. It was ours, Lord. It had our name on it, and yet he took it. And he took it completely. We thank you, Lord, for who your son is, that as the eternal son of God, he was able to offer a sacrifice in time of infinite and eternal value so that our sins could be forgiven forever and that we would be received forever. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. You paid the price that we could never have finished paying if we ended up going to hell to suffer for our sins. You paid that price, and we give you all the thanks and praise and glory uh, with the Father and the Holy Spirit. So, Lord God, be glorified in our lives. We thank you for this sacrament, Lord Jesus, that you appointed. We thank you that you appointed bread and wine as a reminder to your people of your love and of your care and the fact that this is now a, a supper. It's not a sacrifice, Lord. It's a supper to remember what you did. And so we pray that you would bless these elements of bread and of wine that we here set aside and consecrate to this holy use in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And Father, we ask you to bless these elements, bless this sacrament, and bless all who come at this time, we pray. For we ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.